of you now realizing that the youth pastor speaking maybe wish you took an extra beach day on a Sunday before uh, summer ended, but hopefully you've got some good stuff uh, here for you today as we look into uh, to God's Word. Um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 7, and we'll be doing verses 1 through 20, so I'll read those now, and we kind of broke those into uh, the four different sections that are there, um, but we'll tackle them as we go, but I'll just read right through, do a word of prayer, and then we can dive right in. So starting at verse 1 in chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say that to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. For which of you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So when everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in a sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Pray with me. God, I thank you for the opportunity to come out to St. John's this morning and just have a time to dive into your word and what you're trying to preach to us. I just pray that you're able to use uh, myself and Steve to just show your word um, to everybody that's in here and that we're able to take something away and have something apply uh, to our lives. Yeah, I thank you for this opportunity to be here and be with everybody, and I give thanks and all this in your name. Amen. So I'm going to start off, and I'm going to go through uh, 1 through 6. We're going to do those verses first, and then we'll kind of tag team uh, from there. So this first part is talking about judgment. And what I think he's really trying to hit at in these points is to not be hypercritical, not be condemning, and not be judgmental when you're trying to talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Oftentimes, I feel like the things that annoy us the most in other people are the things that we do ourselves that we don't like. So if you bite your own nails, you're probably going to hate it when the person next to you is biting their nails. And it's just the, a cycle that we often get into, that we're always ready to point out somebody else's faults, that we're able to, to make something a big deal when it's really just a small deal. And oftentimes, uh, Carrie and I like to play a lot of video games and board games together, and sometimes we're on a team, and sometimes we lose, and then I'm quickly to point out the mistake that she made in the build-up to that loss, where I'm maybe not as uh, willing to admit what I did that messed anything up. And it's just things like that where I think Jesus is trying to hit at and just talk about with those um, moments. But what Jesus isn't saying is he's not throwing a blanket statement out there that's saying, do not judge. And oftentimes we'll see people who are trying to hide their sin or still live through their sin, they'll just throw out the first verse and leave it at that. They'll say, do not judge or you too will be judged. 
And Jesus isn't trying to say that we can't talk to one another, we can't point out the faults in one another. He's still calling to ask for discernment and critical thinking in these situations. And Steve is going to dive into it later, but I mean, Jesus later points out that we have to realize when false prophets are among us, when there's wolves in sheep clothing. And that takes some type of judgment for us to cast on to somebody else. And even later, Paul goes throughout the Bible and, and he tells us to exercise church discipline. And that requires judgment and to cast, uh, or requires discipline. And to do discipline, you have to require judgment to do that. And we do this all the time, especially in our own lives. We judge and we, and we critique things and we, we value certain things over one another. Uh, when you go shopping for clothes, you might value Target over Walmart or Kohl's to... Those are the three places I go, so I'm at a loss for there. <laughs> and I think the worst part is that I did the same thing at the first service and had an hour to think of a fourth thing, and I still didn't. So, But either way, those are the things that we do in our lives. We're, we're deciding between different things. We're valuing different things, and we're going from there. Um, our natural inclination as people as a human that we are, is, is to judge critically of other people. But what I want to call us to do, and just so there's something, maybe a term that we can walk away with, is charitable judgments. Or Charitable oftentimes in the church is, is used as loving, but a loving judgment, a charitable judgment. We should strive for this before we have all the facts. A lot of times we'll hear one thing about somebody and we'll kind of jump to a conclusion. But I feel like there's two things that we should try to do before we make this judgment. We should take responsibility for anything that we might have caused any issues, that, any comments, or any things we might have done to make this situation worse or to make this person upset and try to understand why they made that decision. So those are the two things that I feel like we need to do when we're trying to talk to somebody about something. And one thing I want to point out in Paul's teachings, and everybody probably knows this, this verse if they've been to a wedding, uh, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And I'll read it real quick. Um, it's, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always preserves. And now this is important because there's times throughout the Bible, uh, Old Testament and New Testament, where Jesus is telling to love one another, telling us to love our neighbors. And I feel like we often take this verse and we kind of put it in our back pocket, save it for the weddings, and that's really about the only time we'll kind of Look, uh, look at it or reflect on it. But I feel like this love that we, it, or Paul is describing here, should go beyond just what our marriages are. It should be, go beyond to the people that we interact with, to our coworkers, to our friends, to our church members. This should be shown in every aspect of our life, just not within one specific compartment. And that's, that's the big thing about this verse, about these first five verses. I'll touch on the sixth one in just a second. But the biggest thing is, is that Jesus, again, isn't telling us to not ever talk to somebody about the speck in their eye. Because even in that fifth verse, it says, First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So yes, Jesus is calling us to look inwardly, to realize the, the plank that we have in our own eye, but we're still called to go out to our brothers and sisters and help them take the speck out of their eye. We're supposed to go in with a loving judgment and not critical, not harsh, not trying to drag somebody down. And the last verse um, in the section that we're going to look at is uh, verse 6, and that's the one that was almost a little bit hard for me to relate to the first five. The first five we're talking about judgment, and this last one it's talking about pearls um, and, and sacred things. And oftentimes you could just stop and assume, okay, he's talking about the Bible there. But with the f- first five verses and it being in the same section, you, you have to wonder how it can relate. And I feel like that's just the loving judgment. I feel like sometimes 
no matter how loving we are and no matter how humble we are in our approaches and trying to, to help somebody out, oftentimes people are just going to reject us and turn it back on us and say that we're being hypocrites, saying that we're being judgmental. And there's sometimes nothing we can do about how people are going to react. And I feel like God is just telling us here in this moment that we need to accept that some people aren't going to listen to what we're saying and we just have to, to move on from it. We're still called to preach the word and spread the word, but sometimes people are just going to reject it. And that's something that we need to work on ourselves, is that on the inside, are we willing to accept when somebody's trying to take the speck out of our eye and try to speak life into us? Jesus then shifts from talking about our relationship with each other to talking about our relationship with God, and, and namely through prayer. And we need God's wisdom, we need His grace to humble us so that we don't have the judgmental attitude that he commanded us not to have in verse 1. So the first verse in our chapter is do not judge. And now Jesus is commanding us to do something. Verses 7 through 8, ask it, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Remember, this isn't even the first time Jesus teaches us on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. If we think back a couple of weeks, back into chapter 6, Jesus warns us not to pray like the religious leaders of the day, to, to just be out on the street preaching for sh- or praying for show. He warns us not to do what the pagans did, and that was to just use formulaic robotic prayers using words that don't actually mean something. And he even gave us a sample prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which we pray together on a regular basis. But here Jesus isn't instructing us what to pray, but how to pray. Ask, seek, knock. In the original language, the the, the words are in a present active tense. It's a command that means keep on doing it. It's an ongoing command. Keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. And as we ask, the Lord will answer us. As we seek, we will find. And as we knock, God opens the door. The Father will answer our prayers because, what, like Mike said in his prayers, that God is fundamentally good. And this is a good reminder not to take this passage out of context. This passage is one of the most popular passages that get, gets ripped out of context on a regular basis. You'll hear a preacher saying, you may hear somebody on TV saying, name it and claim it. After all, Jesus said, ask and, and you'll find, you're seeking, you'll find, knocking the door will be open. So you want that Mercedes? In Jesus' name, give me that Mercedes. No Mercedes, right? You got a bum knee? Place your hand on your knee. Say, Lord, heal my knee. No knee. No knee being healed. Because it's not a name it and claim it. Pat, it's everything in context. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, he's saying this is a command to ask, seek, and knock for our spiritual maturity. If we look up just a little bit, we're to ask, seek, and knock so that we don't have a critical attitude, so that we are humbled. We're to ask, seek, and knock so that we do not worry, so we're not filled with anxiety, so that we keep the kingdom first, as we learned last week. We're to ask, seek, and knock to store up our treasures in heaven and not on earth, which we are all prone to do. We're to ask, seek, and knock over and over so we are obedient to the Sermon on the Mount. We know how to ask, seek, and knock because when we go in for surgery, we are praying and pursuing God with all that we are. When our kid is sick, When money's tight, we need that promotion. We know how to pray fervently. And so God is challenging us. He's commanding us, pray fervently. Seek the Father. Pursue the Father for your own spiritual maturity. And I will answer your requests. 
Jesus goes on to ask us two rhetorical questions. For those of us who are parents, we can relate to pretty well. He asks this in verses 9 and 10. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to good, good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The obvious answer to this is, not me. I'm never going to give a kid, uh, my kid a stone who is hungry. He's going to bite into it and crack his teeth on it, right? You're never going to give your daughter a snake if she's hungry. She'll get bitten. And if somebody did, we would call Dyphus, wouldn't we? Well, I think we should, or whatever it's called these days, right? So no, you, and Jesus says, even though you are marked by sin, you're still going to know how to take care of your kids. And then he uses the, the lesser to greater argument in verse 11, how much more? How much more is your Father in heaven, if you're his child, if you've trusted in Christ with faith alone, in grace alone, how much more will your perfect, holy Father take care of you, his child? We are reminded that God is fundamentally good. He is nothing other than good. Wayne Grudem, the the theologian, says, God is the final standard of good. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. God can't can't contradict his own nature. He can't do anything wrong unrighteous the psalmist says in psalm 100 verse 5 for the lord is good and his love endures forever his faithfulness continues through all generations i remember when i was in seminary our uh, professor shared with us this professor is what i like to call one of these big brain christians one of these guys who has learned and forgot more stuff that i will ever learn in my life you know uh he is one of the world's leaders in in uh semitic ancient near east languages so an archaeologist digs up something from the Philistines or someone from the ancient Near East who often get the call to, to come and translate it. And he shared with us that, that a few years back, one of his sons got mixed up in drugs. And as many of you unfortunately know, you know, when, when uh, one of your family members is into drugs, it wreaks havoc on your whole family. And so if anybody knew the Bible well, it was him. And you think he could give himself his own devotional to, to snap himself out of things. But he felt like he was a failure as a father because his kid was on drugs. He felt like life was a mess. He felt distant from God over those years. And he said no feel-good devotion could crack the surface to just his, his, his dark days. And he said what he would fall back on time and time again is that he knew in the bottom of his heart that God was fundamentally good. Fundamentally good. Some of us this morning have been through some l- rough times in life or going through some very sad times can't see your way out feel like you're going through the valley of the shadow of death but know that God is fundamentally good life is not always good life is not always fair but God is always good at his core and he is good and he invites us to come and to ask and to seek and to knock on his door the wonderful thing about knocking on the door of Christ is we are all equal The smart person knows how to knock on a closed door. The dumb person knows how to knock on a dumb door, right? The short person, the tall, the philosopher, the migrant worker, the teacher, we all can come to his door and he can knock. Jesus says this in John 10, verses 7 through 10 in the ESV, the English Standard Version says, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to kill and destroy. I came 
that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Uh, so as we continue on in Matthew 7, um, I feel like this is the point where Jesus kind of starts to wrap up the sermon. Um, he, at this point, he's talking about uh, the way to heaven, and he's talking about the narrow gate and the wide gate. And I just feel like this is the time where Jesus starts to put the ball into, into our court. If we go back for the past eight weeks uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount, it started out with the, the Beatitudes and what a believer will look like, uh, went on to the metaphor of the salt and how we're called to change the world. Uh, then he starts to go into the need of righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, and, and then he'll give uh, examples for that exactly. And then at the end of uh, chapter 5, in verse 48, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's almost giving us that challenge right then to follow uh, perfection, to follow God and who he is. Then we get into chapter 6, and he gives us models uh, for how to follow him. He gives us models in prayer, in fasting, and giving, and how to deal with our possessions in this world. And now we get into chapter 7, as we've talked about so far uh, this morning, is, is the critical spirit, the judgmental, the loving spirit on how to do that, and then as Steve just talked about, the qualities of prayer. And now I just feel like when he starts to talk about the two gates, he's saying, this is it, I've kind of laid it out, these are the options that you have, you can do one thing or the other. Because at this point, a lot of people are probably starting to feel convicted from what Jesus has said so far. But the thing, sometimes we can get a conviction, we can feel one way, we can realize that we're wrong, but because we don't have a plan afterwards, a commitment to anything, it often falls to the wayside. And I've seen this happen, and I can speak from, you know, more so being at camp sometimes and, and on mission trips. Um, we'll spend, we'll wake up in the morning, we'll go to chapel. From there, they'll go to class, they'll have a little bit break and free time and some games. Uh, but then we'll have small groups, and then we go to chapel again, and then we'll play another game, and then there's a, a devotional in our dorm. And it's like, you, if you calculate you know, the time you're awake, almost half your day, you're spending either praising or talking about Jesus. And that creates almost a, a spiritual high for these kids at camp and on mission trips. And the connection is because they're dedicating all their time and they feel convicted about this when they're on the mission trip or on, at camp. And then when they get home because they didn't make a, a commitment, they didn't make a plan when they get home, they go back to, to school, they go back to uh, hanging out with friends and family, and that kind of falls to the wayside. And that can happen with adults too. If you go on a men's retreat and you come back home to your wives um, and to your family, the same thing happens. And of course for the woman as well when they come back. Uh, to their husbands. And these are things that if we don't have a commitment, if we don't have a plan, uh, it's going to be hard for us to actually act on those convictions and really show our love for Christ. And so we get into 13, and it says, uh, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. On the wide road, you can live however you want. You, you can make your own moral standards. You can decide what you want to do because of the day. One morning, you want to do this. The next morning, you want to do that. And it really doesn't matter. Now, of course, they can have some moral standards um, on this road, but it's not the standards that God has put forward uh, to us. And C.S. Lewis um, wasn't a believer in the beginning of his life, and so he was on the wide road at some point. And he said, the whole thing became a matter of speculation. I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel, and owe the relief of it. There was nothing more to believe other than what comforted me. So when you're on this wide road, you're just doing what you want and how you want it. And because it's a wide road, many enter through it. And it says right there at the end of the verse, many enter through it. And when you're in this, this group, you almost get a group mentality of whatever you're doing is right. 
That's how sometimes dumb things happen when I was a kid. I was like, well, what about this? And somebody was like, yeah, definitely do that. Definitely jump off the roof of that. That'll be a good idea. And then somebody told me, and then just jumped off the roof, and then I was fine. But I made it into the pool. I was jumping into a pool, so it wasn't that bad. But, and I feel like I almost cement this last night, you know, because I couldn't sleep, uh, thinking about the sermon and everything like that this morning. I came across something on Facebook, a video, and it's advertising a TV show on Netflix. It's called Magic for Humans, I think it was called. I don't know what else magic would be for, but it's called Magic for Humans. And what this guy does is he puts a, an ad out on Craigslist, an ad out on the Internet, and is just like, hey, I'm trying to do this experiment tomorrow. I need like 20, 30 people. Uh, come meet me here at this park. And so a bunch of people show up, and then he has two chairs set up, and it's almost like a little amphitheater, uh, like a U-shape that people kind of crowd around. And so he explains everything to them. They have a few tricks. And basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to draw somebody in that's just kind of walking by and then convince them that invisibility is a thing. And so they start doing their things. He starts doing this little trick, and eventually uh, somebody passing by walks in, is interested, and he comes in, he joins them, he sits down. And then after they kind of got him roped in, the guy's like, all right, how about invisibility? Let's, let's do this. I'll show you guys it's real. Do you guys believe in it? And everybody's like, ah, I don't know. And he does this thing, he pours water into a cup, and then he pretends to pour it back into the water bottle, and then he gives it to another guy to drink, but that guy has been holding water in his mouth for like 10 minutes, and then he just spits it out. So now this passerby is like, whoa, how did that happen? That doesn't make sense to me. And so now the guy calls two people up to sit in the chairs, and of course he has somebody already planted being the first chair, and the second one is the passerby that comes up. And they do some type of magic trick, they put the cloth over him, the first guy, the actor, and pull it away, and he's not there. I don't exactly know how that happened. But then they do it to the second guy who they're playing a trick on. He puts the, the uh, blanket over him. He rips it off. And um, he's still, like, as me watching it, he's still sitting there. But you hear the crowd go, ooh, ah. Like basically trying to convince this guy that he's now invisible. And he's like, here, hold this cup. And as he's holding the cup, you hear be like, oh, how's he holding it? He's not there. And so now this guy thinks he's invisible because the people there convinced him that he was invisible. And it's funny, and, and that's a goofy illustration, of course, and a funny one that I got to watch at like 2 o'clock in the morning as I couldn't sleep. But that's just how I feel like this wide path goes. We get into this mentality, we let people convince us of things, of the most ridiculous of things. I mean, I go around here, I don't think anybody's going to say that invisibility is a thing. You can't make somebody invisible. Yet they were able to convince this guy in a matter of minutes because there were 30 people sitting around that circle, telling him that he was invisible. You're not going to be alone on the wide path. But as we go to the road of life, to the narrow path, what interests me is that it says the gate is narrow, and I feel like that's a lot of times where we stop on that. But we don't expand to the fact that the path is narrow. The gate is small, and the path is narrow, is what it says. So not only can you not take your baggage through to this path, you have to let go of the things that are holding you back from God, whether it's how you spend your time or your money or your possessions or uh, certain friends or certain way of life that you're holding on to. You can't take it through the gate. And once you're through the gate, you can't reach back out and drag it through right after you because you're on a narrow path. It's going to be a road where you're going to struggle. It's going to be a road where there's going to be suffering and there's going to be issues. But ultimately, this is the road to eternal life. When I always picture these roads, I picture the, the narrow path almost, you know, if it's on an edge of a hill, uh, the narrow path a little bit higher and the wide one a little bit lower. And I feel like there's the chance that you could be on that narrow path, but you could slip and fall and find yourself on the wide path. But you're never going to just slip and fall and find yourself 
in the narrow path. It's going to take a commitment to get through that gate or climb back up the hill or whatever it might be in that situation in your, in your point of life. But ultimately, it's a commitment for you to go onto that path and stay on a narrow path and stay committed. And one thing over the past year or so that I've, I've been here that, um, you know, maybe some of the youth kids, if they listened to me, you know, picked it up a little bit, but um, was this idea that our commitment to Christ isn't just a one-time decision and it's okay after that. Our commitment to Christ is a daily walk. Every decision we make every day that we uh, get to live and, and walk through our daily lives, there's going to be commitments all throughout that day of you following Christ. And ultimately, at this point, I think Jesus is just putting it into our court. Are we following him every day? Are we on that narrow path? Or are we on that wide path and slipping? And ultimately, he's just putting it into our, car, uh, our court for us to decide. So as we're moving on through the passage, verse 15, Jesus gives us a pretty stern warning, doesn't he? We can almost picture Jesus at the fork in the road, what we just talked about, the fork in the road between the broad path that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life. And Jesus is standing there, so to speak, in verse 15, and he warns us, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. We started off with verse 1 of this chapter, Jesus saying, don't judge. And now we hear Jesus saying, to judge, in a sense. What does this mean? He's saying, be discerning on what Christian leaders, what Christian pastors you follow. We come here week after week, which is great. We worship God in songs with, with open hearts and open souls. But as believers, we're never to turn off our brains during the process, right? We're always filtering through is the guy up there saying what is biblical and what is accurate? So Jesus says, watch out for the fake. We know that wherever there's real in our life, lies there are, there's the counterfeit. There's real money, there's counterfeit money. You get a real call from TD Bank or, I was going to say commerce, but TD Bank or, uh, or PNC, and then there's the fake calls, right? The robocalls trying to steal your information to get your identity. There are the real Louis Vuittons and Michael Kors, and then there's the knockoffs that you buy on the street, right? I can't tell the difference. Maybe you can. But where there's real, there's fake, as it's so with Christian leaders. The famous pastor, Chuck Swindoll, he tells a story about how one of his good friends ate dog food one evening. It was not a part of initiation. He was actually at a high-end dinner at a physician's house in Miami. And another friend of theirs was a chef, and the chef just graduated from a gourmet culinary school. And so this, fr- this chef, as a, uh, as a joke, uh, brought out these really nice high-end crackers, so to speak, put a little dog food on there, sprinkled it with some imported cheese, some, some nice bacon bits and some olives, put it on a nice silver tray for the hors d'oeuvres to serve. Not only did the people eat it, but they came back for seconds. And they said, my compliments to the chef. Maybe some of them barked too, I don't know. But when they found out, when the chef told them, they all had a good laugh and they were all good sports about it. I don't know if you or I would be a good sport about it, but they were good sports about it. But when I read this, I thought it was very applicable to what goes on in the religious realm today. There are fakes serving up dog food, and unfortunately, there are people eating it. As Paul said, we should be mature Christians eating solid food, not eating spiritual kibbles and bits. Right? And so Jesus warns us, watch out for the fake. And here's where the real danger comes in is because it looks like the real. Jesus says they are wolves 
dressed up and they look like sheep. It's easy to identify a wolf, but not one that looks like a sheep. In preparation for this, I did a simple Google. Wolves getting into a herd of sheep, and it is not pretty. Right? The ones who are fortunate enough to escape are scattered and now are on their own, wherever they are, if their shepherd isn't there. And the ones who aren't fortunate enough to make it out are torn to pieces. They are defenseless. Wolves are five to six times faster and bigger and stronger, and it is an ugly sight. So how do we know? How can we discern? We don't want to be people who get trapped and get swept away and taken down the broad road by a false teacher. How do we know? Jesus says this, by what they produce. Verses 16 through 20, you can read it with me. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he repeats in verse 20, thus by their fruits you will recognize them. Christian, in who you follow, we need to be fruit inspectors. We need to be fruit inspectors. You do it all the time. You go to the grocery store. You pick up an apple, a gala, a Red Delicious, a Honey Crisp, an Ambrosia. You should be impressed by my apple knowledge right now. <laughs> you pick it up. You look at it. If it's bruised, if it's dinged, if there's worms, you put it back. If it looks good, you keep it. Likewise, we do the same thing with the people who we are following, the pastors and leaders who we admire and we follow. So how do we inspect the fruit of a Christian leader? Well, Paul writes a letter to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, excuse me, And he tells him two things, which is a good rubric for us as we assess who we follow. He tells Timothy, watch your life, watch your doctrine. Watch your life, watch your doctrine. Watch your moral life, your private moral life. Watch it. Be careful. Watch your doctrine, what you teach and what you believe. So as we assess pastors, as we look at their private lives, we're not going to get full access. I don't want you to have full access to my life. I don't want you rubbing around in my sock drawer. But you can tell enough, is a pastor authentic? Does he literally practice what he preaches? Is he growing in Christian maturity? We want to see a connection between what they say and what they do in their private lives. Is he growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Is he loving? Is he joyful? Is he peaceful? Is he patient? Is he kind to people? Is he faithful to the Lord and to the text? Is he gentle with his family? Does he practice self-control when he messes up? Can he be man enough to apologize and ask for forgiveness? So we watch the pastor's life. If it lines up, it's good. If it doesn't, run. We also look at the pastor's doctrine as well. And two questions here. Does he preach the essentials, the foundations of the Christian faith? Does he preach that there is one God, as the Bible claims? That this one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That Jesus is who he says he is, the second person of the Trinity, who lived a perfect, sinless life and died, not just to show his power, but that, to show his divinity, but so that we can be reconciled to the Father. And we are reconciled through the cross, through God's grace alone, through our faith alone, the essentials of the faith. Part of one of my assignments in seminary a few years ago was to visit a lot of area churches, which was good, which was fun, a lot of different denominations. One church I went into smelled like a church, looked like a church, quacked like a church, walk in, get a bulletin, people are friendly, people are nice, pews, start singing hymns. As we sing, I'm paying attention to the words, we start singing to the spirit of oneness. 
No Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nothing. Just the spirit of oneness. Orange flag goes up in your mind, right? Part of the service where they do testimonies. That's great. Well, the testimony was all about how supportive the community was. No transformed life, no sin, no forgiveness. Another orange flag. Then the preacher gets up, and the whole sermon was about love and unity, which is good. I wouldn't disagree with, but it wasn't anchored in Scripture, never quoted a Bible verse, never talked about the supremacy of God, never talked about sin and our need for a Savior. Red flag goes up. And then finally, they talk about the Sunday school class next week. Build your own theology. We don't want to tell you what to believe. There is no absolute truth, so we'll help you construct. Red flag waving in the wind, man. Run, right? False church, false preacher. Verse 6, I don't want to be overly judgmental, but it's a place of dogs and pigs. Second question, does he preach that there is a narrow gate? Everything in context, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says there is one way, and so does the pastor preach that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the second rubric when it comes to analyzing, is a pastor trustworthy of following? The preacher might get up there and say a lot of natural virtue, which is good, right? Be loving, be acceptant, be tolerant, don't litter, prevent forest fires, the golden rule. All that stuff is good. But does he preach the supremacy of Christ? Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who himself battled false prophets, he said in chapter 6 of verse, verse 14, talking about false prophets, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound, the mortal wound of sin, of turning their backs on God. These false prophets, superficial treatments. They give assurances of peace where there is no peace. Friend, the only way we can have peace in this life and peace with God is through Jesus, through the cross. By His wounds, we were healed. The only way we can have peace. And if we don't have faith in Christ alone, I'll shoot you straight, we are an enemy of God. The only way to have peace is through Jesus Christ. We don't want to be overly judgmental as Christians, but we want to follow true prophets who are following Christ. Well, we talked a lot, uh, about a lot this morning, didn't we? covered a lot of ground. And so let's just recap where we've been. In the first six verses, Jesus commands us not to be overly critical of others. He taught us to pursue the Father, to ask, seek, and knock for our Christian maturity and growth. He warned us, saying there are consequences and rewards for what you believe in and challenges us to enter through the narrow gate and live life on the narrow path with Him. And then He warns us to watch out for false prophets and to follow those who are following Him. Frankly, these are extremely high standards, but we don't do this alone. We do this by the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we find ourselves failing in one of these categories, or all of these categories, we ask for forgiveness, we confess, and we ask God to bring us back by His grace and bring us back home to Him. Let's pray. Father, You call us to a high standard. And Lord, we look to You because You blazed the path. You were obedient to all these things. So you call us to follow you. So Lord, help us to do that. By your grace, Lord. Help us to be at home and in peace with you because you indeed are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear this benediction? No. We're going to have a song.
wait for the benediction. Sorry. I'd like to invite Emily to sing us our closing song. Sorry. I got excited. <laughs>